Welcome to an experimental edition of the community-supported Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from The Sam Cedar Show, Democracy Now!, On the Media, Tom Hartman, NPR, Randy Rhodes, Real Time with Bill Maher, In These Times, The Young Turks, and Mike Malloy. The American military announced on uh, Sunday the death of seven troops killed in five separate combat incidents around Iraq, bringing to at least uh, 11 the number of U.S. service members killed in the country over the weekend. At least 86 troops were killed, U.S. troops were killed in the first 22 days of October, making the month already the deadliest for the U.S. military in Iraq since November of 2005. Now, how long has it been since mission accomplished? Three years? How many thousands of U.S. troops have died? How many hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians have we uh, caused uh, the death of since mission was accomplished? Two soldiers were killed uh, before noon Sunday when Sunni Arab insurgents opened fire on their patrol in West Baghdad. A third soldier died 90 minutes later when his vehicle struck a roadside bomb in West Baghdad. One more U.S. soldier was killed by small arms fire in southwest Baghdad. Military released no further information about the incidents. At least 2,799 U.S. troops have died in the three-and-a-half-year-old Iraq war. And we don't need, I, I haven't seen any um, casualty numbers, but I've heard uh, we have uh, had over four or 500 wounded just in this month alone. Are things getting better over there, folks? Or, or, or is it just my imagination? Or is it just because people are reporting it? That's the problem. The problem isn't the facts on the ground. It's because of the American public now. 60% of them oppose this war. That's the problem. You people are the problem. It's not these Republicans who have controlled this House and Senate and this White House who have brought us into this war of choice, this illegal occupation and invasion of Iraq, it's you. It's you're the problem because you don't support it enough. You got Republican candidates out there. They don't, I, I genuinely believe they don't care whatsoever for the troops. I, I genuinely believe it. Let's check in with Jeff Davis sitting uh, Republican congressman from Kentucky's 4th District. This is him in a debate on Thursday. Let's talk a little bit about the war in Iraq. How many U.S. soldiers have died this month? Do you know? I believe 17 soldiers have died this month. Hmm. 17? It's more like 71. I I don't even know how to respond to that. Here's a sitting uh, Republican congressman And a week ago, when the death toll was at 71, we've lost 15 more U.S. troops. This guy gets out there and says it's 17. He's just taking a wild guess. Maybe he misheard and thought uh, that he was being asked how many died that day. Because that that might be a a reasonable guess, then. I'm curious as to what the spin was by his uh, chief of staff after this. Well, uh, he's uh, dyslexic. He's been drinking. He's been drinking. That's the problem. Uh, He wants to come out and admit that he has a drinking problem, and he has the inability to, you know, he got both the numbers right. He just got the order wrong. You've got to get a little loosened up before you go out for a debate like that. Yeah, exactly. No, he drinks. He drinks. That's the problem. 
Unbelievable. To be a sitting congressman. Now, listen, if he had said, you know, uh, 65, I haven't heard the latest reports. I didn't know about the six that died yesterday. 17? These people don't care about the troops. They don't care about the troops. Well, it really is. These people should just resign en masse. The Bush administration is coming under increasing pressure for its handling of the war in Iraq in the face of relentless bloodshed there. Over 100 Iraqis and seven U.S. troops were killed over the weekend in a wave of bombings and attacks that stretched across Iraq. The Associated Press reports October's unpaced to be the deadliest month for Iraqis since the AP began tracking deaths in April 2005. And the number of U.S. troops killed in Iraq in October has reached 86, making it the deadliest month for American soldiers this year. On Saturday, President Bush met with Vice President Dick Cheney, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, and top U.S. commanders, including General Abizaid and General Casey, to discuss Iraq. The meeting came amidst reports the U.S. is losing confidence in the Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki's ability to willingness to stem the violence. President Bush said his weekly radio address, the U.S. strategy in Iraq remains unchanged. He said, quote, we will not pull our troops off the battlefield before the mission is complete. But the New York Times reported Sunday the Bush administration for the first time is drafting a timetable for the Iraqi government to address violence and assume a larger role in securing the country. According to the Times, officials said Iraq would likely be asked to agree to a schedule of specific milestones like disarming militias or face political penalties. Some analysts say the plan's also an attempt to preempt the findings of the Independent Commission on Iraq led by former Secretary of State James Baker. In an interview with President Bush this weekend, ABC's George Stephanopoulos asked about Baker's plan to develop a strategy for Iraq that's, quote, between stay the course and cut and run. Bush responded, we've never been stay the course, George. Robert Dreyfus joins us from Washington, D.C. He's written extensively about Iraq for numerous publications and author of the book Devil's Game, How the United States Helped Unleash Fundamentalist Islam. We welcome you to Democracy Now! Thanks, Amy. It's a real pleasure. You have written a very interesting piece about the possibility that Maliki could be forced out and that there could be a coup that would unravel Iraq. Can you lay out the evidence and what is supporting your argument? Well, you know, last week we saw the extraordinary development where Prime Minister Maliki called President Bush on the phone and asked him for reassurances that he was not going to be ousted. Uh, This is the same Iraqi prime minister who came to office just a few months ago, uh, again after months of wrangling uh, following last December's elections. Uh, He came to office with great acclaim that he was going to be the 
the uh, salvation force who would bring order and, and stability and political reconciliation to Iraq. And of course, he has totally and utterly failed. Uh, I think everybody across the political spectrum knows that the Iraqi government uh, has no power uh, outside the green zone. It's really a, uh, a coalition of militias and paramilitary gangs that supports the, the current government in Baghdad. Uh, and, and asking Maliki to crack down on the militias is truly asking the fox to guard the hen house because it's the, those exact militias that support his government and make up the main force of his police and, and paramilitary units. Uh, even the Iraqi army is uh, made up to a, a certain extent less, lesser than the police and interior ministry forces of those same militias, uh, the Peshmerga Kurds and many of the Shiite forces. So, so of course, it's, it's a, a non-starter to even think that Maliki could crack down uh, on these militia forces. So that asks the question, what does it mean when we hear all these warnings that Maliki has only two or three months uh, to, and, and this is, these are warnings coming from everybody, including Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and, and generals in Iraq and leading senators and so forth, that he has only uh, you know, two months or so to uh, right the ship in Iraq. Uh, it, it can't be righted. It's, it's a virtually a hopeless situation. And so now there are rumors uh, all over the place in, in Washington, in Baghdad, in other places, that uh, there are forces trying to come up with a non-democratic solution, some sort of coup d'etat, some sort of military takeover that would oust the elected government. Uh, it could be done under a constitutional fig leaf, let's say, if Maliki, Maliki were to uh, resign in favor of some uh, junta of national salvation. It could be done in the middle of the night by some uh, enterprising colonel or general where the United States would look the other way. Um, I don't think any of this could happen without American support, but I do know that there are a number of people inside the Baker Commission, uh, within the U.S. government, in the CIA and elsewhere who are thinking about this. And just the other day I, I spoke to uh, Salah Mukhtar, who is a uh, Ba'athist and former Iraqi official, who said that there are uh, rumors all over Jordan that the CIA has been going around looking, the military going around looking for uh, a general or two who could take over in the event of a, of a coup d'etat in, in Baghdad. Uh, I think the, the idea that the reason this makes it tempting and you know desperate times sometimes can call for desperate measures, uh, it, it makes it, it's tempting because it seems like a, a cut the Gordian knot type of solution where you sweep in with some strongman army guy uh, who could then use the, I guess, the main force of the Iraqi army to crack down on some of these Shiite death squads and others. Um, it, it raises, though, far more questions than it would answer. I don't think it would be a good solution by any means, uh, tempting though it is for, I'm sure, many people in the U.S. military and in the CIA, especially in the realist camp, the people who are frustrated and angry at the way Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld and Ambassador Khalilzad have handled the war in Iraq uh, over the past couple of years. They're, they're looking for some sort of solution that would work, and I think they're uh, at least 
uh, considering this as maybe the least bad of one, uh, at least bad one of the many horrible options that they have for for Iraq, short of of leaving, just you know, so-called cutting and running, which is increasingly, I think, really the only logical choice that's facing the United States. Wednesday, New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman wrote that what we're seeing in Iraq, quote, seems like the jihadist equivalent of the Tet Offensive. It wasn't the first time that the war in Iraq has been compared to the war in Vietnam. That comparison has been brought out, tried on, discarded, and then brought out again in various colors and styles for three years. But this time, something different happened. President Bush, more or less, agreed. Here's George Stephanopoulos asking the president on ABC News whether Friedman could be right. He could be right. Uh, there's certainly a stepped-up level of violence, and we're heading into an election. But what's your gut tell you? Uh, George, I, my gut tells me that they have all along been trying to inflict enough damage that we leave. And the leaders of al-Qaeda have made that very clear. That exchange was picked up and covered around the globe. But David Halberstam, who covered the Vietnam War for the New York Times, says the direct comparison to the Tet Offensive just isn't right. Well, in Tet, in early 1968, the other side, the North Vietnamese regulars and the Viet Cong, who rarely stood and fought, they would hit and disappear because they wanted to conserve their forces against a Western army that had vastly superior armaments. They stood and fought. And they came right in to the American embassy in Saigon. And therefore, it dented the United States government's view that we were constantly winning the war. What it showed was that they could keep coming, that therefore the war had not worked. And it was a huge political shock, not so much to critics of the war, not to a population that was fast changing on the war, but to the political allies of Johnson, and it really shattered him. He knew he could not pull it off. Do you see going on in Iraq now its equivalent, a change in the dynamic that is going to suddenly sway public opinion here? You think Tom Friedman was right? I am puzzled reading the Tom Friedman column, which for someone who's a very careful, skilled, and thoughtful journalist seems extremely careless in his references to Tet. I think it's poorly done on what happened to Tet and poorly compared to what is happening today. So I think anybody paying attention in this country knows for quite a while that the White House tragically miscalculated what was going to happen in Iraq. Uh, In fact, I think Americans have been more suspicious about the alleged promises of victory in this war 
because of Vietnam. I think the general public has been more skeptical. And yet, George Stephanopoulos hits the president with the question, is this the Tet Offensive of Iraq? And the president shrugs and says, "Uh, maybe. As a student of both uh, Vietnam and uh, journalism, uh, you've written books about both, uh, what do you make of uh, the dynamics of the media story? Well, I can't really tell because what's interesting about the stuff coming out of the Stephanopoulos Bush interview is that I don't know what either of them is really saying in terms of placing this in the context of Tet and what they think Tet means. The president has been exceptionally weak on the history of the Vietnam War. Is he going to be like one of these right-wing people who thinks that, in fact, Tet was a victory for America, but a political defeat, and therefore is what he's saying here, the war is really going better than this momentary glitch shows? I mean, I can't tell exactly what the president is saying, and certainly I don't have any sense that Stephanopoulos is defined it particularly well or turned to anybody who knew anything much about Vietnam. So it it seems to me to be weak reporting, as far as I can tell, a rather vague answer. I mean, this is a president who was ready to say almost from day one, you know, mission accomplished when he flew into the uh, carrier off San Diego. And uh, that's sort of like proclaiming a victory in the World Series after one out in the first inning of the first game. Okay, David, thank you very much. Thank you. David Halberstam covered the Vietnam War for the New York Times and has written books on everything from Vietnam to the media to baseball. Robert Dreyfus has written a piece called The End of Maliki, Will a Coup Unravel Iraq? He's the author of Devil's Game, How the United States Helped Unleash Fundamentalist Islam. Um, And he covers national security for Rolling Stone magazine and writes frequently for uh, Mother Jones and The Nation and other publications. Ra'ed Girard is also with us in Washington, D.C., Iraqi blogger and architect. His blog is called Ra'ed in the Middle. dot blogspot.com. Uh, he is Iraq Project Director for Global Exchange, and we welcome you as well, Ra'ed Gerard. I want to ask you about Ra- what Robert Dreyfus is hypothesizing, uh, the question of the end of Maliki and whether a general or a colonel or someone backed by the CIA could come in to remove Maliki. Um, There are a lot of rumors and facts um, concerning what's happening in the Iraqi government. Uh, The end of Maliki came some months ago, in fact, when the last uh, attempts of pushing an Iraq reconciliation plan were aborted by a U.S. intervention last June. 
المالكي lost his credibility in Iraq and المالكي's government lost their credibility as well. The Iraqi parliament is still trying to do some changes. They are failing sometimes, succeeding some other times. What's happening is that there are so many rumors about a coup d'etat in Iraq, but everyone knows that the Iraqi government is not functioning. And uh, there, there isn't a functioning army, there isn't a functioning police forces. So the idea, uh, like, you know, maybe this government will fall if, even farther, more farther, but no one is expecting that someone strong can come and take uh, over the government. There isn't something, anything to, to be taken over. There isn't any functioning structure. But the facts that are um, the leader of the National Dialogue Front, uh, Dr. Saleh Al-Mutlaq, uh, has been promoting for an Iraqi National Salvation Government for the last months. And now his calls are getting some more support because of uh, uh, the, uh, the support of two major uh, Shia parties, Al-Fadila and maybe a Sadr group. Um, Al-Mutlaq is uh, currently in Emirates trying to propose this uh, National Salvation Government, which is a very radical solution of what's happening in Iraq. Everyone wishes that there is another solution that can be implemented by force. But I think many Iraqis or the majority of Iraqis realize that no other solutions can be implemented by force. People are looking forward to have a peace plan that is based on negotiations. There are a number of Iraqi initiatives like the Iraq Reconciliation and Peace Plan that is started since last year. Uh, people are waiting for a support of this plan. Even a number of armed resistance groups announced that they are ready to take a part of the reconciliation and uh, let their, uh, stop fighting. If the U.S. sets a timetable for withdrawing the troops and uh, keeps Iraq's unity and uh, works to uh, differentiate between resistance and terrorism, which is a very general Iraqi demand. So we can see that there are some Iraqi plans and in, uh, local initiatives uh, that are waiting for a support, but unfortunately uh, the U.S. intervention is putting even even more obstacles on their way. And I don't think many people think that there is a possibility to change the situation through uh, more use of force and violence. I want to turn back to Robert Dreyfus. Um, Robert, uh, you write for the Washington Monthly about a higher power. James Baker puts Bush's Iraq policy into rehab. Can you talk about this possibility of dividing up Iraq and what's being predicted is in this report? Well, I don't think that the Baker Task Force, it's called the Iraq Study Group, and it's, it's co-chaired by Lee Hamilton, a Democrat from Indiana, a former representative. I don't think that they're leaning toward the partition notion. That's, a, a, I think, a, a, a horrible misguided solution that's being promoted by Senator Biden from Delaware. Uh, I think more likely, and I've talked to many of the people who fed ideas into the, the Baker Task Force, his expert uh, working group people, uh, I think they're more looking toward some uh, maybe slow motion version of getting out of Iraq. I, I wouldn't say cut and run, but maybe cut and walk. Um, that that they realize that the battle for Iraq is, is lost. And I think they're leaning toward uh, some sort of solution that would involve, first of all, a regional plan, getting the uh, agreement from Iran, which is supporting many of the 
Shiite, uh, including some of the Shiite extremist groups, uh, as well as the Shiite uh, government forces in ir Iraq and Syria, which on, uh, on the other hand is supporting many of the Sunni uh, resistance groups. Uh, getting their agreement as well as uh, Turkey and Saudi Arabia and others to try to stabilize Iraq. And then I, I hope, going back to what my colleague here just said, that they'll start thinking about a negotiated peace with the resistance. There are many people in, among the insurgents who are more than willing to come into the political process if and when the United States agrees on a timetable for withdrawal. That's their demand. In other words, the resistance demand is to have the United States agree to a timetable for withdrawal. And in exchange for that, you'd see almost all of the Iraqi Sunni-led resistance, probably minus the Al-Qaeda group, uh, would come into the political process in Baghdad. That, in turn, would remove a great deal of the incentive for the Shiites to maintain these uh, death squads and, and defense movement militias, and would, I think, ease the tension between the Sunnis and, and Shia and it, that is, is masking, in a way, the political conflict. It isn't really a sectarian conflict. It's a political conflict that needs a political solution. And I don't know to what extent, and nobody knows, uh, to what extent uh, James Baker gets this. I know many of the people on his task force certainly do get it. Uh, the question is, to what extent that begins to become the dominant paradigm after the election. I think there's no doubt that after this election, which is going to hand the Republicans a massive defeat, that both the military and the Republican Party are going to start to look toward an Iraqi exit. And especially the Republicans. The Republicans know that if they go into the elections of 2008 with this Iraq war hanging over their head, that they're going to suffer a massive political defeat, uh, not only on the level of the White House, but again in Congress. So they can't afford uh, to, to, to not end this war sometime uh, between now and the 2008 election. So I think there'll be tremendous pressure uh, on the White House to consider a radically different strategy. news, oddly enough, but this is the headline, Iraq cancels peace talks after scores more die. Indefinite delay is blow to credibility of government. Militia kills 46 Sunnis after 17 Shia found beheaded. This is by Michael Howard in Erbil and agencies in Baghdad. It's in The Guardian. 
The unremitting wave of sectarian violence that has greeted the Muslim holy month of Ramadan claims scores more Iraqi lives at the weekend as authorities in Baghdad announced the indefinite postponement of a conference of political leaders seen as crucial to quickly diminishing hopes for national reconciliation. In a terse statement from the Ministry for National Dialogue, the government said the reconciliation conference, which had been scheduled for this Saturday in Baghdad, would be delayed until further notice for, quote, emergency reasons, end quote. And then they note, this in The Guardian, the cancellation is a further blow to the credibility of the national unity government of Nuri al-Maliki. The embattled prime minister has come under intense pressure from the U.S. and Britain, as well as ordinary Iraqis, to halt the communal violence and the activities of armed militias and death squads. And at the same time here we have George W. Bush saying that he's calling Al Maliki. Yesterday he calls him up and he says, uh, as to quote Tony Snow, he told him not to believe rumors that the U.S. had privately given Al Maliki a two-month timetable to shape up. End of quote from Tony Snow. The rumors, actually, came from U.S. Ambassador to Iraq, Zalmay Khalilazad. Our ambassador is the guy who said that we had given them two months to get their act together. And he said it on CNN. So, so our ambassador goes on CNN and says, we've given them two months. And then, and then Bush says, oh, no, 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 we're two months now, we're not going not to, not doing that. That's just, this is incredible. Bush is, Bush is contradicting himself. He's contradicting his own ambassador. This thing is being held together. I'm telling you, this, 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 this government in Iraq is being held together with bubble gum and, and, and rubber bands. It is on the edge of exploding or imploding, if it hasn't already. I mean, you're not hearing about meetings of parliament and all that kind of, all these, they're all, they're all hanging out in the green zone, scared to death to go out. Al Maliki, I mean, several of his people have, have been killed. I mean, it's just, it's just, it, it, it's, it's gone. It's over the top. You got Jack Murtha. I mean, he's been saying this for what a year. John Reed, Senator Jack, uh, Jack Reed, rather Senator John Warner, Senator Chuck Hagel. I mean, Republicans. Say what? The internet's back on. Uh huh. Okay. Uh, James Baker, Colin Powell. I mean, right across. Uh, just it's it's mind-boggling. I don't know how to say it beyond that. It's just it's it's tragic, is what it is. That that we got into this war so that George W. Bush could have political advantage. Cindy Sheehan testified before the, the uh, Conyers Commission. As a matter of fact, in interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend, Mickey Herskowitz, then Governor George Bush stated, one of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander in chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait, and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I have that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. It looks like George Bush is ready to lead this country into an avoidable war even before he became president. Yeah. 
Indeed. And and all the more is the tragedy. And and here we are. I mean, here we are now with, with this just, you know, slow motion disaster going on that has led to the deaths of over 600,000 human beings by best estimates. And this is, this is a group that went in and actually did interviews and actually asked to see death certificates. 600,000, I mean, if, if this doesn't qualify as a genocide, 600,000 human beings, not to mention millions who have been displaced, we have to change this policy. I mean, this is, this is, this is, and we have to hold these guys accountable. The Bush administration accountable for what they've done. George W. Bush has committed, in my opinion, a serious war crime. I mean, this is, this is a major breach of international, of the codes of international conduct. Invading another country that represents absolutely no danger or threat to you. This is, this is just wrong. In post-war Iraq, the cafeteria in the Republican Palace under the Coalition Provisional Authority served pork chops, hot dogs, and sausage, but almost never any hummus. Because of stipulations in government contracts, all food had to be shipped in from approved suppliers, so the cool cucumbers and plump local tomatoes were also never served alongside the bacon cheeseburgers. Rajiv Chandrasekharan, who was the Washington Post bureau chief in Baghdad, began to find this symptomatic of life in the green zone, where American occupation and recovery efforts were headquartered. Mr. Chandrasekharan, who is now assistant managing editor of the Post, has written a new book, Imperial Life in the Emerald City, Inside Iraq's Green Zone, and he joins us in our studios. Thanks very much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Scott. And you you found that cafeteria scene emblematic uh, in in, in many ways. Did the Iraqi employees who worked for the CPA begin to have strong feelings about the menu? There was grumbling, but they didn't really have a way to redress those. When concerns were brought to the folks at Halliburton who were responsible for running that dining hall, uh, they were sort of brushed aside. Uh, It was was emblematic of, of the cultural sensitivity or lack thereof that was demonstrated by people who were running the the green zone. Mm-hmm. And, and to a number of abiding Muslims, eating in a place that serves pork is... is... It's, it's very offensive. Pork is prohibited uh, for many devout Muslims, and simply sort of taking food from the same buffet line that has pork in it is, is seen as something that's unclean. Mm. Who worked for the CPA as a generalization in that first very critical year? It was a whole motley assortment of Americans. There were some diplomats, there were some military officers, but there were also an awful lot of people who came in not because they possessed any great skill in the language of Arabic or experience in the Middle East, but they were recruited because of their political fidelity, their loyalty to the Bush administration and the Republican Party. There was a a whole system of 
recruitment from Republican offices on Capitol Hill, from conservative think tanks, from other parts of the Bush administration. And just to ensure that they would be loyal, some of them were questioned in the pre-deployment process in interviews with the Pentagon, and they were asked questions like, did you vote for President Bush in the 2000 election? And some have told me that they were even asked what their views on Roe versus Wade were. And, you know, what does that have to do with the reconstruction of Iraq? Well, there there was a concern in the administration, wasn't there, that people who who might have had longer careers in the State Department had worked to actively undercut U.S. policy, and they they wanted people who believed in what the U.S. policy was. That's right. Veteran Arabists were deemed insufficiently committed to this notion of democratizing the Middle East. They were seen as people with an old way of thinking, people who supported the authoritarian regimes there. And so the U.S. effort in Iraq needed new blood a new perspective, and and not those old hands who had some experience in the region. They would bring folks who who really didn't have any pre-existing biases, at least that was the argument. The problem was was that those people also didn't have much experience in the region. Let me ask you about the the figure of Ambassador Bremer, because personally, he obviously is uh, perhaps the major figure in your book. Some phrases that people use to describe him, tireless, disciplined, kind of man who inspires confidence. What were some of the drawbacks to those qualities? And let me tell you, Scott, I was not one of these people who started out thinking Bremer was the wrong man for the job. I also thought that he would listen to Iraqis, he would be consultative, that he would be able to marshal the necessary resources. The problem is that he became something of a control freak. He surrounded himself with a small group of advisors. He wanted to sign off on things. That and he, he insisted to people in Washington, in the State Department, in the White House, if you want me to run this, you let me run this. I exactly. This, yeah. He didn't want to be managed, as he said, with an 8,000-mile screwdriver. Mm-hmm. And initially, people in Washington were content to let that happen because there was this feeling that there was a vacuum of power and authority under Jay Garner, and Bremer was the take-charge guy. He'll be the quarterback who will go on the field and call the plays as he sees them, not work from some sort of scripted playbook or have to turn to the coach on the sidelines. But the problem was governing and reconstructing Iraq is an incredibly complex task. People of a certain generation remember a good life. They remember not wanting for electricity or clean water or working hospitals or top-quality universities. And the Iraqis felt that upon the arrival of the Americans, things would improve. It's a phenomenon that General David Petraeus, who commanded the 101st Airborne, used to call the man-on-the-moon phenomenon, that the United States was a country that put a man on the moon. Certainly they can turn my lights on. I find it significant that you and I met in Baghdad in a, in a darkened hotel when there wasn't any power, because you would hear Iraqis say, this is the strongest country in the world that defeated Saddam in 27 days. Why can't they turn the lights on? It fueled many conspiracy theories. And when, when the first wave of American engineers showed up, they went to some of these power plants and they found these decrepit monstrosities with 1950s era control panels and they'd walk through and find leaky valves and everything was a mess. And they expressed surprise. But all of this could have been known before the war. There were UN development experts in that country who were going to power plants. The CIA had satellite imagery of Iraqi cities at night and could see how well lit they were or not. The idea that Iraq's infrastructure and the great problems with it were only discovered after the war is a bit of a fallacy. Had we wanted to know about this, we could have. And I felt in those early months, the lack of electricity spawned 
a greater degree of anger toward the Americans than seeing American checkpoints or hearing about accidental shootings or any of the other things. Now, Ambassador Bremer at one point made a calculated decision that when they began to repair the electrical grid of Iraq, that he was going to do it in a totally equitable manner, which is to say that other parts of the country, particularly where Shia lived in the southern part of the country, had not received as much electricity as they had in the capital in Baghdad. And he thought that was wrong. So he decided to distribute what stores of electricity they were more equitably. What was the practical effect of that? The practical effect was that Baghdad, the capital, the center of opinion, wound up with about half as much electricity as it had before the war. So people who used to get 20 to 22 hours a day were now getting 8 to 10 to 12 hours. And it really angered people. And as we see now with the decision by the Pentagon to concentrate U.S. forces on Baghdad first because they feel that securing Baghdad is key to securing the rest of the country, that opinion in the capital shapes it across the country. We should have realized this back then, and we shouldn't have disadvantaged the capital. And the, the few extra hours of power a day that were given to people across the Shiite South never really won us any friends. It just wound up angering a lot of people in a place where you didn't want to anger them. You seem to think that U.S. policy missed a series of opportunities and one overall great opportunity during the first few months. The great missed opportunity was to do a better job with governing and reconstructing Iraq. There was a window there of months where had we brought the resources to bear, had we created an Iraqi interim administration that projected to the Iraqis that Iraqis were really in charge and Americans were there to be advisors to help support this administration, but that you had Iraqis slightly more front and center. I think it would have had an enormous difference. Would this have solved everything? Would it have prevented an insurgency? I don't think so. But I think it would have created a situation on the ground today that's very different from what we, we are now encountering. Rajiv Chandrasekharan of The Washington Post. His new book is Imperial Life in the Emerald City. making a list of all the lies that the Bush administration told us. Uh, going way back to fairies will be used to attack you. Cows are dangerous. Model airplanes. Oh, my God. Everything is uh, dangerous, and you should get some duct tape and visqueen. And then we had an orange Christmas. We were in shopping malls, and they said those are going to be the target. I mean, what have they ever told the truth about. Uh, and you know something? I have like writer's cramp from making the list of the lies that they have told us, and I'm sure I've left some out. So if I miss any in this list, uh, please feel free to dial in at 866-303-2270 and, and say, oh, you missed this one, Ran. Remember that one? Yeah. Okay. 
On the terror attacks, uh, I could uh, actually write them all down, but I know I have this, so I thought I would just, uh, you know, have it come from somebody on the TV. All day long, CNN has been reporting on Homeland Security and efforts to target the United States. We're calling it Target USA. How safe are we here? Target USA, special coverage all day right here on CNN. We are taking an in-depth look at where America is most vulnerable to terrorist attacks. We have more than 6,000 power-generating plants. A 4,000-mile U.S.-Canadian border. The subways, the buses, railroad lines, cruise ships, the ferries, more than 5,000 airports. You can see anybody could come up to any of these and put anything inside them. And look at the shopping centers. This is the big issue. If you build a better mousetrap, the terrorists will build a better mouse. Remember when a bomb was a few sticks of dynamite wired to a timer or plunger? Well, those were the old days. A briefcase like this one could easily hide a bomb. Liquids that can be used potentially to make bombs. Liquids that could easily fit into containers of household items. You can put it all in one, you can make a little separate cut through here and uh, just compartmentalize <laughs> this bottle. It's an easy way to slip into the United States undetected. And you've got just a regular AA battery and there's your power source. When I pour water into a sealed sandwich bag, place it inside my belt line, you can sandwich barely see it. Bag. Something as small as a sports drink and maybe some hair gel. Now, of course, we want to give any <laughs> want to be terrorists any ideas here no. if i don't want my private areas shown i should put a metal plate in my pants <laughs> and that didn't even talk about the model airplanes the cows the ferries the unmanned aerial vehicles that could spray you and get here and and of course the orange christmas was my favorite shopping malls that is the big target okay so we know that they've lied and manipulated the level of fear in this country each time we've had an election so don't be surprised when i tell you that the president of the united states lied when he said he would smoke out osama bin laden when he would get him dead or alive in terms of mr bin laden himself we'll get him running We'll smoke him out of his cave. So I, I don't know where he is. Nor you know, I, I just don't spend that much time on him. Yeah, he also told you Social Security was broke, and uh, apparently it's not. Uh, he also did not anticipate the breach of the levees. I don't think anybody anticipated the breach of the levees. What everybody anticipated the breach of the levees, and uh, what else? He said. Well, no one could imagine airplanes being used as missiles, and now we know in Bob Woodward's book, uh, the latest of the trilogy, it said that on July 10th, Condoleezza Rice was warned of exactly such a thing. They said we support the troops, but of course the troops had to stand up and say, why do we have to forge through, uh, you know, landfills to get uh, armor? What it, What is that about, sir? You, you, we're not really uh, clear about why we... Now, why do we soldiers have to dig through local landfills for pieces of scrap metal? and compromised ballistic glass to up-armor our vehicles, and why don't we have those resources readily available to us? And, of course, the media put it up to him, put him up to it. It wasn't real, you know? Then they said they didn't know Kenny Boy Lay. They also said they didn't know Jack Abramoff. They said whoever leaked Valerie Plame's name would be fired. And if someone committed a crime, they will no longer work in my administration. Given, uh, given recent developments in the CIA uh, leak case, particularly Vice President Cheney's discussions with the investigators. Uh, do you still stand by what you said several months ago, suggestion that it might be difficult to identify anybody who leaked the agent's name? And and uh, do you stand by your pledge to fire anyone found to have done so? Yes. And, and that's up to the U.S. Attorney to find the facts. <laughs> 
And we know Carl Rove told Matt Cooper of uh, Newsweek uh, Valerie Plame's name. We also know Richard Armitage told Valerie Plame's name to various people, and they still work there. Uh, then the Bush administration told us that, um, you know, we couldn't win the war on terror, which the media just decided to forget. Do you really think we can win this war of ter on terror, for, for example, in the next four years? I have never said we can win it in four years. I'm just saying, can we win it? Do you see that? I don't, I don't think you can win it. <laughs> There's the spirit. Uh, of course, they also said that the oil would pay for the war, that 40,000 troops would be enough to hold Iraq after the fall, that Zakharwi's death would change everything in Iraq, that once he was gone, uh, everything would be a uh, cakewalk. It would be peaches and cream. It was all going to change. They said we'd find weapons of mass destruction. They said that we would be welcome as liberators. They said that the insurgency was over about a year ago. And I think they're in the, in the last throes, if you will, of the insurgency. He also said major combat operations in Iraq have ended. Anytime you hear the United States government talking about wiretap, it requires a wiretap requires a court order. And of course, there are no secret prisons, and North Korea will never be allowed to have nuclear weapons. Now he swears on his stack of Bibles that he keeps handy because you know he is a man of the Lord. He is a man of God. Now he says that he Never said his strategy was to stay the course. What we, I, listen, we've never been stay the course, George. We've never been stay the course, George. Let's review that new lie and see if that's true. After long last, have you said something true? What we, I, listen, we've never been stay the course, George. We will stay the course. We will complete the job in Iraq. The second thing you do is you stay the course. But on the other hand, you also cannot be a president in a wartime and not realize that you got to stay the course. We will, st we will stay the course. We will, um, we will stay the course until the job is done, Steve. And uh, the temptation <laughs> is to try to get the president or somebody to put a timetable on. Uh, on the definition of getting the job done, um, we're just going to stay the course. And my message today uh, to those in Iraq is we'll stay the course. People are going to want more of it, and that's why the president's determined to stay the course April. And that's why we're going to stay the course in Iraq. And so we've got tough action in Iraq, but we will stay the course. What? What we, I, listen, we've never been stay the course, George. How much more does it take? to convince you that this man is a world heavyweight champion liar. Alright everybody, so as I said right at the beginning, this is an experimental edition of the show. Basically, what I'm thinking of doing is switching from a daily podcast to a weekly podcast, but the uh, the big difference would be that instead of the shows being one hour long or so and being on one topic, they would be, you know, three hours long, um, something along those lines, and be about many topics, although they would still be divided just like a regular show. So imagine three, four, or five episodes of Best of the Left just all pasted together into one file. That's what I'm thinking of doing. So uh, normally, you know, that sounded like the end of the show right there. And uh, so normally I wouldn't be talking right now. I only am now to explain what's going on. But just imagine that 
another show started immediately and it just kept going but on a new topic and so as i said three four five different topics a week all paste it together into like a three-hour show you can listen to it all at once you can divide it up and listen to it daily however you want so i don't know that's my idea uh, basically the point is uh, it would be less work for me and hopefully very close to the same amount of content could actually get out uh, with a little bit less effort and less time devoted to the project. So um, let me know what you think. Uh, comments to hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes from here. mind-boggling and there's there's some really mind-boggling pieces to this uh, Andrew Brown writing in today's Wall Street Journal China's reserves near milestone underscoring its financial clout what is what is happening is that one of the most powerful economies in the world is now a dictatorship I mean people say well you we need to be afraid of radical Islam well Radical Islam is, is a problem, but it's nothing, I'm telling you, it's nothing compared to what's going on in, in the boardrooms and in the banking centers of the world. And the, re, and the relationship between this country and China with regard to trade. Sometime in the next few days, China's holdings of foreign currencies, this is from Andrew Brown in the Wall Street Journal, sometime in the next few days, China's holdings of foreign currencies and securities will top $1 trillion dollars a sum greater than the annual economic output of all but nine countries. Now, this isn't, their, this isn't China's output. This isn't China's GDP. This is the amount of debt that they're holding, the amount of cash that they're sitting on. Much of it denominated in dollars, much of it from the U.S. In fact, as the Wall Street Journal notes, most of China's currency reserves are invested in U.S. dollar-denominated debt, such as U.S. treasuries. And it's growing at the rate of $20 billion a month. They go on to note that that has kept demand for U.S. treasury notes high and interest rates low. A change in that pattern, in other words, if the Chinese decide to say, eh, we're not going to buy these things anymore, could affect how much Americans pay for mortgage loans and other borrowings. I would take it a step further. I would say if China decided to stop buying U.S. debt, we might see interest rates in, in this country go up to 10, 15, 20 percent very quickly. Because, the, you know, the government would have to start offering more interest in order to get people to buy its, its debt. And we sure are selling a lot of debt. This is, how, this is how the Bush administration borrows money to give it to the defense contractors so that they can make it look like the economy is working and they can fight wars and things without having to tax their buddies, the millionaires and billionaires. In fact, as the Wall Street Journal notes today, some in Washington and in world markets fear, and it's a legitimate fear, that China may one day dump its holdings of dollar-based assets, setting off a tidal wave of sales that might swamp the U.S. economy. They're going to say roughly 70% of the Chinese reserves are believed to be in U.S. dollar assets. 
This is amazing. This week, the U.S. passed 300 million in population, and this week, China passed one trillion dollars in foreign debt that they're sitting on. They go on to note in the Wall Street Journal, as China's reserves balloon, markets and many U.S. officials believe it may be buying less Treasury, U.S. Treasury debt, and more debt issued by U.S. mortgage lenders Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Well, that's interesting. In other words, they're propping up our housing market right now. China's reserves already far exceed what that country need, what that country needs to protect its economy from global financial shocks. One trillion is roughly one and a quarter to one and a half times China's total import bill last year, and equivalent to roughly 45 percent of the year's economic output. The total could pay off China's total short-term foreign debt six times over. In other words, we have become the debtors. We have become the third world nation. We're the ones who've been wiped out by 26 years of insane trade and economic policies, starting with Reagan, continued by Bush, continued by Clinton, and now continued by Bush again. And, and who has become the first world nation? Who has become the world's banker? Who has become the, the wealthy nation? Who has become the nation sitting on so much money that, and, and so much of our debt that if they say, okay, guys, pay up, it could throw us into something even worse than the Great Depression? China. The communist dictatorship of China. The composition of its dollar assets suggests that China is, more, is a more sophisticated portfolio manager than Japan, they note. The flimsiest reports from China on the management of its reserves can cause gyrations in global markets. They note in May, remember when gold went up to 700 and something? They say in May, for instance, China Gold News, leading industry publication in China, carried comments from a Chinese economist who said China should raise its holding of gold from 600 tons to 2,500 tons. He doesn't speak for China. He was just talking about it. He's a part-time economist. As a result of that, gold prices spiked all around the world. Everybody said, oh, China's going to buy gold. Oh, off it goes. In the meantime, by spending a large chunk, this is from the Wall Street Journal, by spending a large chunk of its national savings to buy U.S. debt, China is helping keep mortgage rates in the U.S. low at a time when money could be put to better use in its own huge developing economy, at least in the or could, or could be put to use, excuse me. So what's the bottom line of all this? Well, the bottom line of all this is that because we are running a debt-based foreign trade system and a debt-based economy, this crazed Reaganomics, Clintonomics, the Reaganomics domestically, Clintonomics, well, really it's Friedmanomics, Friedmanism, Tom Friedmanism, uh, internationally, we're being wiped out, the United States. I mean, there's just really no other way to say it. We are being wiped out. For example, this is from economyincrisis.org, which is a great website that, that lays this stuff out. America is hemorrhaging its wealth. And this is literally true. I mean, we are literally bleeding our net assets, our wealth, at the rate of $723 billion a year through our balance of trade deficit. This equates to over $1.4 million per minute flowing into foreign hands. This is the money foreigners use to buy us out. We've sold over 8,000 companies in the last 10 years. And then they, 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 they look at a period, just a two-month period, from March 23rd to May 23rd, this is a report that was written at the in the BG, in early June. So it was it says in just the last two months alone, from March 23rd to May 23rd, we have sold 94 major American companies or major interests in major divisions of them for over 10 billion 187 million dollars. See these companies overseas, they're sitting on all these dollars because of our insane trade policies. 
What are they going to do with them? They come back and they buy us. Equity One Inc. Properties, for example. $388 million worth of that company was bought by, by interest in Bahrain. Gillette Company, deodorant brands, $420 million worth of that company bought by interest in Germany. Interchange Financial Services, $480 million bought by Canadians. J. Jill Group, $516 million bought by Japan. AOL Time Warner's Book Group, $537 million worth of that company bought by France, or people in France, interest in France. Lifeline Systems, $738 million worth of that company bought from the Netherlands. Aero Technologies, $765 million bought from Germany. American Medical Holdings, $785 million of that company bought from Canada. Pioneer Natural Resources, $1.3 billion bought by the Japanese. AWAS, $2.5 billion bought by those in the United Kingdom. And then they, they go on to say the sale of Pioneer Natural Resources, for example. This is, this is a good example. This is the one the Japanese bought for $1.3 billion. It shows what happens. They own Gulf of Mexico assets. Okay, in other words, the, the right to explore in 90, 97 exploration and pro production blocks uh, and six producing fields to explore for oil, oil in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, you would think that if somebody finds oil in the Gulf of Mexico, that that's going to benefit the United States, right? I mean, you would think that. No. <laughs> that's the problem. If, if now the profit from that oil found in the in the Gulf of Mexico by Pioneer Natural Resources is going to go to Japan. They they go on as the, the note that two dollars per this includes thirty thousand barrels of oil equivalent production per day, approximately six hundred thirty thousand gallons of refined gasoline a day at two dollars a gallon gas. This investment could be paid off in less than three years. The sale of our wealth producing companies or assets like Pioneer will hasten the day. When America reverts, reverts to the former colonial status we had in the 17th century. From this sale alone, we're going to pay Japan to use our own oil and gasoline. I mean, this is 90% of our footwear com companies are now foreign owned. Or, excuse me, of our footwear is foreign manufactured. 87% of our audio and video equipment, foreign manufactured. 86% of our leather products, foreign manufactured. 75% of leather and titanium, foreign done. 67% of our clothing, apparel accessories, 67% foreign, foreign produced. And so we send all that money overseas, so what do they do? They come over here and they buy our industries, our sound recording industry, 97% foreign owned. Commodity contracts dealing companies, 79% foreign owned. Metal ore mining, you think people mining ore out of the ground in the United States would be American companies? Sorry, 65% foreign owned. Our motion picture and video industries, that's an all-American industry, 64% foreign owned. Motion picture and sound recording industries, 75% foreign owned. As a result of these crazed policies. was all I'd ever need. Well, I want to be clear. Well, I needed you here. And I'm waiting you out. But you. I'm 
One of the issues that workers are dealing with now is that a lot of jobs have been outsourced to other countries, including a lot of service positions. And um, one of the things you want to do is organize global unions. Can you give us a sense of what kind of model you'd like to see? Well, I think you know, just like the first companies who tried to create you know, multinational corporations, you know, we're, we're sort of trying to stagger forward, you know, make progress. You know, what we know is very simple. It used to be workers of the world unite was somewhat of an ideological question. And we had this great struggle between communism and socialism and capitalism. You know, now what we have is instead of those kind of conflicts, we see that workers in the United States and workers in Canada and Mexico, South Africa, and Indonesia, Korea, who get up every day and walk for Walmart actually have the same employer. And all of a sudden we're finding not a struggle ideologically, but an opportunity in terms of workers of the world working for the same employers, trying to come together and be able to change their lives. And we now have done a series of efforts around the world with other unions, particularly in the security and the cleaning and food service industry, where people that work for the same companies are beginning to approach their employers in a common fashion. Someday you would hope that that would lead to global unions, that it wouldn't be a, a coalition or a confederation, there would actually be real integration so that those workers belong to the same organization, not to deal with issues about their country's politics or cultural issues, but issues about work. And I think that's the direction we're going. People who work in the same companies, people who work in the same industry, need to belong to the same organization. And now that capital has gone global, trade has gone global, and companies have gone global, unions have to go global as well. Boy, it seems like there would be a lot of obstacles to organizing that because a lot of the countries that um, a lot of the countries that the jobs have migrated to don't have the kind of democracies in which unions are likely to thrive. Take China for for instance, in which a lot of jobs have been um, you know a lot of companies have moved there, a lot of jobs have moved there. What are the odds of forming um, active labor unions in um, an authoritarian country like China? Well, first of all, if America keeps moving in the direction it has recently in, in some of the Bush NLRB rulings, which are taking more and more rights away from people like nurses to be able to have their own organization, you begin to wonder what kind of democracy we're going to have. In China, the truth is they actually have better labor laws than they do in the United States on paper. The truth is also that they are a part of the government, the unions, historically. But as the market economy is beginning to come into place, the Chinese unions are faced with a problem that the government is not their employer anymore, as it once was when everything was owned uh, by the party and run by the party. Now we have huge multinational corporations. Almost every Fortune 500 company is now in China. And these workers are saying, well, I can't go and complain to the government. I actually have to go to deal with these multinational companies, and it's been pretty frustrating. And we were involved with the Chinese unions trying to work with them to organize Walmart. And it, it's somewhat ironic that the first unionized Walmart store I ever went into was in Shenzhen, China, and not anywhere in the United States. So I think it is a problem in terms of the history of China. It, certainly it has not changed significantly, but you can see the seeds of change as, as multinational companies come in and workers of the world confront the fact you know, they can't raise their wages you know, simply on their own. They need organizations, and at times they're going to need a global organization as well. So what was the union that the Walmart workers were organized in? Well, there's only one union in China. It's called the ACFTU. 
It's been there, written into the Constitution since 1925. It really was, as, as it's called itself for a long time, a transmission belt between the party and the workers. But that was in the you know, communist-dominated, state-owned enterprise era, and now we have a different era. And I think what happens to the Chinese Union are enormously important. They have 140 million members in their organization that pay dues. It is not the kind of union, I'd say, yet, you know, that any of us think is the right level of activity. But the point is, it's changing, and it's important that it changes in a way that it becomes an independent force for the workers in dealing with those employers, because multinational companies are rushing to China, and it's a race to the bottom, and they are at least a force that could raise wages and benefits. frustrated now. The chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors said a couple months ago, boy, we have such a wonderful economy, how come nobody appreciates us? And the answer the American people basically given is, uh, you know, who am I going to believe, you or my own wallet? The fact <laughs> is that while economic growth has been strong, it has been unduly concentrated among a small number of people, greater than historically the case. So wages for <laughs> corporate profits are going up. Wages are down. Alan Greenspan. Wages are not down. They've been yeah. up the last year. No, but Bernie, but why don't average wages are up. Why no. don't the Democrats, when the Republicans say, "Oh my God, you're waging class warfare," say, "Yeah, because you Republicans are committing class warfare." I am warfare. saying that. I am but saying so that. This has been the strongest expansion we've had. No. We've had six million jobs in the last three years. We have the lowest unemployment rate in the industrialized and world. Tax revenues are way up. up. Where are the tax cuts for the rich? The rich are paying more a share of taxes today than they've ever right. done because, in the last 50 years. Because their I mean, income. Where are these tax cuts right. for the rich? Because their income has gone up disproportionately. In fact, if you look at national income. You said what you said. Now I want to respond for more than a minute without an interruption. The percentage of the national income that's gone to corporate profits has nearly doubled under Bush, while the percentage that goes to wages has dropped. Wages have barely ticked up, counting inflation, about a very tiny, less than a percent over the last year. Over the Bush years, they are down some. They very greatly lag productivity. And look, I'm quoting Alan Greenspan and... 2004, and Ben Bernanke says it's still true. We have greatly increased wealth, but almost all of the increased wealth is going to the owners of capital and none to people who work for wages. That was Greenspan in 2004, and it's still Bernanke. The owners should get some of it, but not all of it. Let's make more Americans owners. I mean, the fact is, what you've ha seen in this economy is a huge expansion in the housing market. Americans' homes have doubled in value in the last 10 years. Two-thirds of Americans are homeowners. 54% of Americans are stockholders. I know a stat. So, so they own no, these oh, wait, 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 I, know, I, I, I know a stat, though. Right. That, uh, this big housing boom we right. had, four out of the 10 homes sold in that, second homes. That's an awful high percentage. 
for a housing boom when it's really just rich yeah, people of selling each other's houses because, with money they borrowed from because, China. When you talk about the 54 percent, that 54 percent stockholders, they are not individual owners of stock. That's counting people who are in pension funds. And in fact, the average American is seeing an erosion in his pension. Businesses are moving as their CEO salaries go skyrocketing and as corporate profits go up. More and more companies are moving away from a pension plan, which gives the employer a certain employee a certain amount. Pension plans are underfunded. So that 54 percent stockholders, it's mostly in people's in pensions. And the average American worker's pension has been taken a pounding. Also, let me just ask, and I'm asking as the idiot at the table. How can you, how can you quote these? How can you quote stats of prosperity? When every day, when I looked, when I checked online today, our 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 deficit is at eight and a half trillion dollars, and the average American, That's the, debt. The, aver- That's the debt, the debt, the debt. right, uh, and the average American is going to be paying twenty eight thousand dollars per person on that debt as of today. Well, the money that the right. money that we are quoting as right. our prosperity is not our that. money. Let There's money in that. the bank, but we didn't put it there. We didn't generate it. It's on loan. If if this if we had these this economy, and Bill Clinton were president. This guy would be doing cartwheels down Pennsylvania Avenue. That's nonsense. This economy is solid. We have the lowest unemployment rate. We have solid job growth. We're we're outgrowing our competitors. Let me respond. Those are just the facts. No, these are not the facts. Because job growth, you want to compare it to Clinton. By the way, I haven't done cartwheels in a long time. It wouldn't be a pretty sight. (laughs) I want to see that. And I'm certainly not going to do them on television. But... um, what you have is job growth under George Bush, as you know, has seriously lagged job growth under Bill Clinton. The amount of jobs, job, let's, let's make a, you think that there has been greater job growth in the Bush years than in the Clinton years? In the last three years, we've had no, six million new jobs. Three years. How long has George Bush been president? Almost six years. Now, what do you want to look at? Intellectual dishonesty? Bush has been president for nearly six years, so you count just three years. And in fact, the six million, that's two million a year. Clinton averaged more than two million a year. Yeah, but you know when, no, the, no, when, when the economy we, turned around, when the Republicans took no, over see, Congress in You're changing the subject. You're changing the subject. You claimed, you said the Clinton years versus the Bush years. Job growth has been significantly, was significantly greater in the Clinton years than under the Bush years. Right. Wages grew much more in the Clinton years. Real take-home wages for employees than I the Bush years. private employer and you chair a group called Walmart Watch. What's the purpose of this group? The, of the 100 largest economies in the world, 52 are companies, 48 are countries. Walmart is the 31st, which means that the sales of Walmart are greater than the gross domestic product of Ireland or Singapore or Venezuela. This is a huge corporation, $300 billion. And yet its business model is not only low prices, 
but really now more and more part-time workers, low wages, and very little benefits. In fact, it's hard to believe, but Walmart just came out with a new policy that caps the wages of its long-term workers, all of which is just trying to force them out so they can hire lower-wage workers. It requires about 40% of its workers now to be not only part-time, but be available to work any shift, which means if you're a mother with daycare needs, it's impossible to be able to do that. Or if you want to make a plan to go to church on Sunday with your family, you're at Walmart's disposal if they decide they need to change the shifts. And what they're looking for is the most flexible and disposable workforce. And then on top of that, if their employees get sick, you know, Terry, you and I are going to end up paying for their health care because Walmart has the largest number of people on tax-funded health care plans state by state. I mean, the five members of the Walton family, and I'm sure they're decent people, they have $19 billion each. They get $500 million each from George Bush from his dividend tax cut. I mean, this is not going to build a great American economy. You know, when five people, you know, make a fortune, and the people that work there are now being told, you have to pay $13 for your new khaki pants that are going to be part of your new uniform at Walmart, that we're not even going to provide you with that. I mean, this is going to make America the kind of country that really becomes two-tier. And I think it's wrong, and I'm working with other people to try to change it. So are you trying to unionize Walmart? We're not. Um, you know, our, the purpose of our group, which combines unions and community organizations, women's and civil rights groups, is really about changing Walmart's business model. Unions would be a way to do it, but there are many other ways in the 21st century to get a company's attention and to try to have them act in a much more responsible fashion. You know, I was reading a, a book about how politics have changed and are changing. And uh, one of the observations in the book is that, you know, it used to be that if you're running for office, you wanted to win the labor vote because it's a big voting block. And now it's about values. People vote their values. And I, I wonder what your reaction to that is. And, and if you think that there's, that the way some people cast it, the, uh, the whole idea of like winning the labor vote seems outdated. Well, I think that every voter in their minds is, is weighing a number of factors. You know, whether it's your feelings about the particular candidate, whether it's economic issues that are troubling you, whether it's social issues, war, terrorism. I think we're all complicated people. You know, what we find is for union members, when we talk to them about the issues of work and where candidates stand on health care or retirement, you know, people make their own decisions, and they tend to vote for people that serve their interest. You're a union organizer who, as you point out in your own book, does not have stories about growing up in a union family. You grew up in a family of lawyers? Well, my, my dad's a lawyer. My mom, as was custom of her time, raised her kids before she went back to work, and I have uh, two brothers and a sister who are lawyers. So how did you get into a union? Well, it's it's a... I wish it was an important story. The truth was I had been doing a lot of part-time work, and I finally got what was then a very good job working for the state of Pennsylvania as a social service worker. And I noticed on the bulletin board that they were having a union meeting to discuss the first contract. And what really interested me, because I didn't have a lot of money at the time, was they were serving pizza. <laughs> so my union career begins with going to eat pizza and then being the last one in the room 
when the final issue on the agenda was the election of the assistant shop steward of the Vine District Welfare Office. And in a trick that I used many times after that, I was the last one in the room, and the shop steward uh, nominated me and elected me by acclamation, and that's how I began my union career. This is a kind of personal question, but one of the things that you, you, you write about in your book, A Country That Works, is the fact that your your daughter, when she was, I think, 13, um, died in part because she had scoliosis, which is uh, curvature of the spine, and she'd had some surgery to relieve that. And, and her death was related to the surgery and to an, another medical problem that she had. Um, in, in your job as a labor organizer, you know, and the head of a union, you're not working nine to five. You're, you're working night and day and weekends, probably. And I'm wondering how that kind of personal tragedy um, affected your sense of, you know, work versus family. Well, you know, the one thing I'm really glad for, you know, is that I don't look back and say, you know, I didn't spend enough time with my, my daughter or my son. You know, I write in the book about how, you know, we traveled together to Africa and to Italy and places around the country. We spent an incredible amount of time together. And, you know, in the end, I don't know what I'd do if I felt like I had sacrificed my family for my job. And I just think it's enormously important we create a country, you know, where people, you know, aren't sort of passing their partners like ships in the night or in the driveway, you know, tag your it, no tag you're it in terms of child care and other responsibilities. So I was glad I got that opportunity, and I, you know, I miss her desperately. And she is, as I say in my book, you know, the courage that I have now to be much more fearless about fighting for what I think is right because I've faced the greatest tragedy, the most horrible nightmare I could have imagined. I barely made it through it. You know, my union family and my own family, thank God, were there, you know, for me. And now I feel like I have a responsibility to her and to her memory, you know, to live with a kind of courage about doing what's right so that other people can get time with their kids and at least have the opportunity to do the best they can to raise their family and live the American dream. Well, Andy Stern, thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. Andy Stern is the president of the Service Employees International Union and the founder of the new labor federation, Change to Win. His new book is called A Country That Works. Making my way downtown, walking fast, faces pass and I'm homebound. Staring blankly ahead, just making my way, making my way through the I need you, and I miss you, and now I wonder if I could fall into the sky. On December 22nd, an Oakland court ordered Walmart to pay $207 million to former employees named in a 2001 class action lawsuit. The court ruled that Walmart violated California state law by not allowing employees to take a 30-minute unpaid break during shifts longer than six hours. Aaron Sarver spoke with black commentator-publisher Glenn Ford about the case. Ford has written about Walmart for various publications. 
How will this court decision affect Walmart? Well, it will have a much more uh, political impact than it will have a financial impact. We have to understand uh, that Walmart is a $256 billion a year global revenue company. So the court judgment, uh, even if it's affirmed on appeal, will not hurt the company. But it, it will signal that the political war is on, and uh, at least at this stage, Walmart taking a blow. We, we have to really, however, consider how we look at this struggle. Walmart is the leader in the race to the bottom in, in terms of workers' wages and working conditions and actually relationship to their employers and society. But they're not the only ones. And if we don't get it in our heads in terms of cadre, that means the people who work with unions, and the workers in general, uh, that this is a corporate charge, that the race is not just Walmart. There are other players in this race. In fact, all of the corporate players are in this race. Then we won't understand the circumstances of the game. You've written extensively about Walmart. What do you think is the biggest misconception about Walmart in the public eye? I don't know if it's a misconception. The public thinks that they get things cheap. Walmart's customers are low-income people in the main. Walmart's policies, and that also includes other corporations like Walmart, one must emphasize this, it's not just Walmart, will create more and more low-income people. So what we are seeing is the impoverization systematically by corporations like Walmart and with Walmart in the lead uh, of whole communities that have less and less money and will need <laughs> to go to cheaper places like Walmart more and more. They will have less and less options. Their world will shrink. Walmart, with its big boxes, shrinks the lives of working people. Do you have any specific strategies in mind to combat Walmart and other corporations that are systematically working against labor practices? Yes, Walmart started off in, in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is where their uh, computers regulate everything that happens, which means that whatever happened in California that violated the rights of workers happened everywhere. Walmart has stores. But it rapidly became not a southern and southwestern corporation, but a national one. It's had problems getting into the big urban areas. What the black commentator has been advocating for two years is that activists join in devising a plan for cities to save themselves from corporate penetration that allows corporations design not just the layouts of the cities, but the lifestyles and wage levels of cities. And that includes Walmart, but it, it's more than just Walmart. If we don't do that, if we don't resist penetration by not just the Walmarts, but by other corporations into our urban life, then we will face a demographic crisis that becomes a political crisis in which we cannot resist them.
What do you think are the chances of Walmart being unionized anytime soon in the U.S.? Very little chance. And, and that the reason is, and I hope my union brothers and sisters uh, will not resent this comment, because I believe that they do not understand that, I'm talking about my union brothers and sisters, I believe they do not understand that it is not just the big beastie, Walmart. Walmart is simply at the head of the pack. It's not just a model. It is where the whole system is going. And therefore, the resistance must be based upon changing the way business is done in the United States. For example, Walmart is the major domo of outsourcing. But it's not the only one. It's the most dramatic one. We know that uh, Walmart is, a, is, is one of the major importers from China, but it's not the only one. We don't change conditions for working people simply by getting Walmart, and we don't change Walmart without an understanding of the overall situation. We, we have to get the broad scheme, and that's not being done by the unions. And historically, American unions have never taken a broad look at the global picture and seen themselves as in opposition to what capital does. If they do not do that, and I do not believe they are doing that now, then uh, they will fail, as they have failed in the past. Something's happening on the streets. It's not what I hear, no. It's just what I see. It's something's happening at the bar. Cause happy hour. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman as we turn now to a crusader against corporate domination. Reverend Billy and the Stop Shopping Gospel Choir have just completed their nationwide tour crossing the country in two biodiesel buses. They urge consumers to celebrate the holidays by rejecting overconsumption, avoiding big box megastores, supporting local proprietors and community economies. They brought their message to shoppers in a variety of venues, including the largest retail complex in the U.S., the Mall of America, in many Minnesota, the headquarters of Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas, and Disneyland. During the last several years, Reverend Billy and his Church of Stop Shopping have made themselves a thorn in the side of companies like Walt Disney, Nike, Home Depot, Starbucks by staging protests both outside and inside the stores. Today, fresh from a Disney jail or, well, arrested in Disneyland in California, he's just back in New York and joins us in our studio. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Reverend Billy. Thank you for having me, Sister Amy. On behalf of the Stop Shopping Gospel Church, We've been on a mission to save Christmas from the apocalypse. We've been going across this country 
asking Americans to count backwards from 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Wake up. Are we people or are we sheeple? We have to stand up to the axis of consumer evil. Amen. Hallelujah. Corporations advertising credit cards. We're mistaken to think that we're consumers at Christmas time. We are being consumed. We're like geese, Christmas geese, roasted and basted. And here come the four supermodels of the apocalypse. Children, we must, we must rise to a new level of consciousness and leave the dead, exhausted pine tree in our living rooms, march across our front yards and down our streets and out of the supermalls. I can hear what you're saying, what you're thinking. I need that Christmas sale. I need to get that deal, Reverend. I need, I need to buy 13 pair of panty for a dollar. I want to have that gingerbread latte. It's like Dickens in my tummy. Oh, and I need that new Xbox 360. Oh, the graphics, the special effects. It's crazy. It's just like real life. Children. I think that is the key, the key to walking away from the commercial Christmas is refounding our real life, discovering what it might be to give a real gift, not a simulated gift, a real gift from the heart. This is Reverend Billy, Sister Amy. So you've been preaching across the country? Yes, and that, that was a little excerpt of the what we call the stump sermon. <laughs> and how were you received, for example, in Bentonville, in the home place of Walmart? Walmart. That was very moving. We, we, um, we were just overwhelmed there and quickly abandoned all pretense to shtick. Um, you can just feel the cruelty of that company and its facelessness in Bentonville. It, it, uh, its sign is more modest than your average uh, sign in front of a construction site in New York. It, it's just a cheap little plywood sign, not so little, but sort of uh, unmade. And then there's a parking lot and there's, there's, just, there's just nothing there. There's no pretense to architecture at all. No statement to the outside world. And, you know, that's where Lee Scott pulls down um, 30 grand a day. Uh, we started in a cemetery right around the back and then came around the jail-like exterior, the barbed wire, just praying and singing. And we were just thinking about the the thousands upon thousands of people that have been betrayed by that company. On the TV broadcast, we've been showing photographs, which we'll put on our website at democracynow.org for our radio listeners of your Stop Shopping Gospel Choir. They look like angels in in white Mm -hmm. uh, choral gowns as they encircled Walmart. Mm -hmm. We, we, well, it's hard to encircle Walmart, (laughs) but we, we circled around the, the sign, the big sign in front. And while the, you know, corporate um, rent-a-cops studied us from their SUVs, 
Why'd you go to Disneyland? Well, we started the project of Reverend Billy 10 years ago in the days of Rudy Giuliani um, and the Disney, the new Times Square. Do you remember that? In the, in the, in the late 90s. When the local neighborhood was demonized every day uh, as being made of nothing but uh, muggers and so forth, it was mostly a war on small vendors, independent shops. And here come the clouds of Disney lawyers, settlements, litigiousness, whatever it took. Some businesses there 20 or 30 years. And that's where we got involved uh, at the beginning. And we discovered the process of not just preaching in front of the Disney store, but then going inside, pretending we were customers, and we started inventing what we call retail interventions. <laughs> and we did that all, all across the country. The, uh, the Stop Shopping Gospel Choir is largely musicians and actors, and um, we performed as customers um, all the way across the country. What does that mean, performed as customers? What's you go retail in, um, intervention? As we did in Disneyland, you go in as a customer. You say, I'm a willing participant in this product delivery system. And then later you begin to have heightened conversations and soap operas and so forth and so on, which, which deliver information about the corporate behavior of that company. You particularly have taken on Starbucks. I remember uh, in New York, Astor Place, is there, what, six Starbucks in that area? It's a Starbucks cluster right there. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? Well, Starbucks is an especially egregious company because they study all social change movements from the labor movement on and imitate them. They all become little advertising campaigns, not so little. They become the subject of the expenditure of hundreds of millions of dollars. In fact, if you just talk to Global Exchange for five minutes, you can determine that they are not an environmentally friendly or labor-friendly company. They are uh, employing seven, eight, nine-year-old kids um, out in the pesticide-drenched coffee groves in Guatemala and Chiapas. They, they have about as much fair trade certified coffee on their shelves as would be necessary to advertise. <laughs> about 2%. That's what Global Exchange and U.S. Leap and some of the other monitors in the, in the coffee-growing regions estimate. And what would you have them do? Well, I'd like to break up the company myself. <laughs> I think it's like Standard Oil a hundred years ago. I, I, I believe in, in supporting independent stores. Um, I believe in, in main streets that are healthy and neighborhoods that are healthy where people are conversing on the stoops and on the street corners. Uh, that kind of conversation, that kind of uh, jumpy, sassy, direct sort of talk is the kind of thing that makes a political consciousness that becomes, well, we might not be so apt to buy the product of the war in Iraq, for instance. If, if our main streets were not shuttered and killed and then simulated inside super, super malls, basically all across the country, Mall of America and so forth, we were inside super malls marching down main streets, taking back our First Amendment rights to shout a little bit and sing a little bit. Why were you arrested at Disneyland? We were shouting a little bit and singing a little bit. <laughs> we were, you know, it's a sweatshop company. It's 100% sweatshop company. You, you, know, you know Charlie Kernigan and Barbara Briggs and all the, all the people that know this. And through the changeover from Eisner to Iger, somehow or other, the empire of 20,000 sweatshops around the country that bring their products to their shelves 
somehow or other didn't become an issue. And we remain, somehow or other, Americans remain depoliticized around the act of consuming. They don't believe that paying for something and taking it off the shelf has any human ramifications. We have 10 seconds. Well, children, (laughs) consumption can be, and is for most of us here in the shopping season, a sin. Let's bring some compassionate consciousness to how we make our purchases. Amen, hallelujah. Merry Christmas. President said, regardless of the outcome, the administration would go full speed ahead in the same direction. Well, I think that the American people have said, not so fast. Americans are voting to end the politics of smear and fear. They want a change. Just begun. Tonight, as one people and across this country, we have to roll up our sleeves and get to work on the business of changing the course of our country.
Democrats to take our country in a new direction. And that is exactly what we intend to do. Happy post-election day. Hope you had uh, all sorts of fun and frivolity today. I, I noticed today that I, I, I felt like um, a, a weight was coming off my back or chest. Uh, it was rainy here in Atlanta for the first part of the day, but it was a glorious rain all of a sudden. Oh, and uh, there are two suicide watches out there tonight, Fox News and John McCain. Remember, McCain said he would commit suicide. So keep an eye on uh, both those organizations, and McCain is an organization, and good riddance to numbskull, rumskull, you murderous old bastard, good riddance to you. Now, if the uh, Democrats, uh, well, we'll get into this later, but um, he can still be subpoenaed, he can still be forced to tell the truth. Even though I know the timing of the rummy uh, ouster had to do with uh, Karl Rove's plot to try to control this crazy bastard, uh, continued to try to control the news cycle today, keep the Democratic victories off your TV screens. It didn't work. Um, the, uh, the Rumsfeld sideshow was comic relief. The big news is the Democrats control both the House and the Senate, period. End of story for the time being. The, uh, the press conference today, both of them illustrated the major league flip-flopping by this liar-in-chief, the decider, as he likes to call himself, who decided he'd rather not get good advice from this advisor from whom he got advice and advises him and would listen or something like that. And simply put, there are no knowns and things you know or shouldn't know, and we all know it's past time for Remy to go. Shows what a good thumping at the polls will do, huh? We will have sound for you tonight from Bush's two press conferences. Today, you want to stick around. Already, the uh, caterwauling and the screaming and the pleading and the whining for compromise? Right? Have, have you noticed that? that? That was the big word today. Big, big, big word, big phrase. Compromise, reaching across the aisle, civility. Too bad this is not satellite radio where I could uh, editorialize in, in, in a more uh, uh, open way about that call. Uh, now that the Democrats have taken control of both houses of Congress, the Republicans and the political pundits and even the Democratic leadership, everybody's calling for civility and reaching out to the Republicans. Are, are, are they serious? This is astonishing. After six years of Bush in power, and 12 years of these filthy dogs in the Republican Party completely ignoring the Democratic Party. Completely. No, nothing. Reaching out my ass. There was nothing ever. 
Are the Republicans disrespecting Democrats to a degree unheard of in our political system? And now comes this whiny call for bipartisanship? What, Democrats now are to forget the humiliation? The gutting of the Constitution? The rush to unprovoked war, the lies, the deception, the theft of election after election, the unstopped political corruption by this Republican Party. And now the Dems are to reach out to what forgive and forget to work with these pigs to rise above what Republicans call. Well, it's petty political partisanship. That's when the other party is asserting control. Right. Republicans, please. And these television news reporters who are choking on their own hypocrisy is astonishing. Uh, I've been watching CNN's Andrea Koppel. She's among the worst uh, that are not associated with Fox, of course. And everybody at Fox is on Suicide Watch. Uh, Andrea Koppel could barely conceal her utter contempt for the Democratic victory. That little sneer that she is so good at dropping on sentence after sentence when it has to do with Democrats is getting a bit tiresome. Andrea, why don't you go to work for Fox where you belong? And the call for uh, Virginia's now ex-Senator Allen to continue to resist admitting his defeat was dumbfounding. Remember the Republican bully boys, the brown shirts who rushed the polling places in Florida to interrupt a legitimate recount? Remember the screams from Republicans for the Democrats to sit down and shut up and accept their defeat? Remember, the public has spoken. Remember? And now Allen doesn't have the decency to do the same. And a recount of Virginia doesn't mean anything. 80% of the votes in that state are electronic. There's no paper trail. Nobody knows what's real and what isn't real. Get the hell out of town, Allen, you racist pig. Your history. And the pig man. Oh, the pig man. Limbaugh. Conservatism won yesterday, not the Democrats. Not a desire of the majority of Americans to get away from war and death and corruption. No, 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 no. The pig man. Is going to tell you the honest truth. Yes, he will. You see, yesterday's repudiation of neo-Nazism, yesterday's affirmation of the rule of law, not the rule of a stupid, illiterate megalomaniac like Bush and his crime family. All of what happened yesterday, according to the pig man, was merely a victory for real conservatism. Mm. And the pig man on his website today says he's tired, so tired of his term, carrying water for the ungrateful Republicans. Big man, this election was not about you, you evil old bastard. Go away. Your history. You were funny 15 years ago. You're a boil on the ass of America now. Go away. Pig man's tired of carrying water. Oh, Remember how grateful he was in 1994 when Newton the Boys made him an honorary member of that Congress because his lies and distortions brought the Republicans to power finally after 40 years to begin with? What did he say today? Where's the quote? People have been asking me all night, all, all, all day, how do, how do you feel, Rush? <clears throat> well, I feel liberated, ladies and gentlemen, because uh, <clears throat> I don't have to carry the water for people that I think don't deserve to have their water carried. <laughs> And what did he say, uh, 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 I think it was uh, last week or a couple weeks ago when uh, Air America went into uh, bankruptcy, he said Air America was not a real network. It was only set up to influence elections. Okay, pig man. Mission accomplished, you large ass. You betcha that's the only reason we were set up. And we did it.
And then they fired me, but, you know. No, it's not. It's not about you, Malloy. <clears throat> it's about me. I'm the pig man. It's not about you. How many stations are you on now? Three? Christ, I'm on 900. Really? And Rumsfeld's resignation, the ultimate cut and run. So typically, Republican, how do you think the people wearing the uniform of the United States military in Iraq, in the cesspool, blood-soaked war zone that these bastards created, how do you think they know uh, they feel tonight knowing that Rumsfeld cut and run, you filthy coward? You did it again, didn't you, Rumsfeld? And Bush. What's to say about the ultimate flip-flopper? You liar. Everyone knew you were a liar. We're, we're going we're gonna to demonstrate uh, his lie about Rumsfeld a little bit later tonight in the sound bites. But these people make me sick. Compromise? And Bush at his press conference uh, today, he suddenly claims he's looking for common ground? Cooperation? He's looking forward to working with the Democratic leadership? Really? When did that happen, chuckle nuts? When did you ever want cooperation from the Democrats? You were telling people not more than 72 hours ago that a vote for Democrats would be a vote for a terrorist. You son of a bitch. You're a dictator. You're a little tyrant. You have no interest in so-called cooperation. You issue orders, chuckle nuts, not suggestions, not ideas to work together to common ground. Get out of town with your phony we're looking at common ground crap. Who are you trying to kid, Bush? You cowardly little monkey hanging up there on the podium today, looking like somebody just cut your zipper out of your pants and your thingies hanging out. Compromise. Reaching out. Twelve years of this. How many? What, 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 what do you want? Frist. Think about Frist over the past 12 years. Think about Tom DeLay, that evil little snake who was on CNN tonight saying, well, uh, the Democrats didn't win. The Republicans lost. Who in the hell cares, Paula Zahn, what Tom DeLay says? He belongs in jail. Think of the names over the past 12 years. Dennis Hastert. Duke Cunningham. Tom DeLay. It just it just goes on and on. These Filthy, corrupt Republicans. And now they're talking about reaching out that the Democrats have got to prove themselves. No, the Democrats have to hand you your ass in 08 again and again and again and put you snakes in your place. November 8th, 2006, big news, ladies and gentlemen, big news uh, from last night, Britney Spears getting a divorce.
Can you believe it? Uh, and uh, apparently uh, there was uh, the American people spoke loud and clear last night. And uh, and yesterday, uh, you folks got out, you voted, you got your parents to vote, you got your friends to vote. And, uh, well, folks, uh, we have uh, taken the uh, Republican results from last night. We have put it through our transcoder machine, the X511 Air America Radio. Uh, we take these uh, paper results. We put them through a, a transcoder machine, which will actually turn them into an audio soundbite for you. Here it is, folks. Uh, this is the Republicans last night. And, oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Uh, there was a stunning rebuke of the Republican uh, leadership and domination of the House and the Senate. Twelve years control of the House, six years or so, uh, five years or so uh, control of the Senate. And the American public said, uh, we're done with you people. American public rejected conservatism last night. They rejected republicanism last night. Uh, they rejected uh, George Bush's stay the meander in Iraq. Uh, this was a stunning defeat, a national sweep, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Democrats have taken the national majority in the House. They are primed to take the national majority in the Senate. They have done so in the governorships. They have done so in the state legislatures. The only thing uh, that uh, Republicans uh, still have is uh, Karl Rove and George Bush's five o'clock shadow. Uh, it's it's time for uh, the country to come and uh, and be bipartisanship. To uh, to uh, be pi uh, uh, I was joking when I said defeatocrats. I want to first. Uh, I was joking about all of it, everything. I didn't even weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> I was look. Can't you take a joke? Uh, this has been the uh, biggest majority. Uh, the Democrats will take the House, and it appears that they will have a larger majority than the Republicans ever had during their 1994-2006 so-called Republican Revolution. There was also more uh, Democratic uh, Senate campaign victories last night in a single cycle, 23 or 24, depending on uh, what happens with Montana and Virginia, although it looks like Virginia is basically all wrapped up. I don't even know if they'll have a recount. They might, but uh, Webb seems to be up by, what, about 10,000 votes at this point. And uh, there will be the recount has already begun in Montana, but John Tester is up by almost 2,000 votes. Uh, it appears, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that uh, the Democrats will uh, now control the Senate as well. This is uh, the biggest Senate uh, campaign uh, win, I guess you'd call it, uh, since 1980. And this is unprecedented. Republicans were completely shut out. They failed to pick up a single seat, be it governor Senate or House, and I guess we're talking there nearly uh, 460, 70 different uh, seats across the nation. Republicans were unable to pick up a single democratically held seat. The voters did not turn out one Democratic legislature, uh, legislator or governor across the country. This is huge. 
There has also been a seismic geographic uh, shift. This is the first time in 54 years that the party without a southern majority now has a House majority. This is huge, ladies and gentlemen. This is the death knell of the Republican Southern strategy. It will have reverberations for years and years to come. Uh, and progressives won big last night. A member of the Progressive Caucus will now be Speaker of the House. Of course, I'm speaking of Nancy Pelosi. Progressive Caucus members who ran for Senate, two of them won easily. Sanders in Vermont, and we will be speaking to Bernie Sanders today on the program, and Sherrod Brown in Ohio. There were a huge amount of blue district victories. In other words, Republicans holding seats in blue districts thrown out on their uh, Batinskys. And, of course, uh, Republicans really have nothing to blame but their leadership or lack thereof. They broke all of their fundraising and voter contact records this year. Their 72-hour get-out-the-vote game plan was at 105%. They had better maps, better technology than they've ever had. They had a better opportunity to pass uh, uh, legislation than they've had perhaps in 40 or 50 years. And the, the American public spoke, and they said, we will have none of it. We will have none of it. Uh, there was record turnout in many states uh, across the country. Uh, no, nothing, I think, bigger than a presidential election, although maybe in a couple of states it was pretty close. Uh, but certainly uh, record turnouts uh, for a uh, midterm election. Uh, this is huge, folks. Remember, in a, a midterm election... In the sixth year of a presidency, in 86, only five seats changed hands. In 98, only five seats changed hands. We're looking at somewhere between 27 and perhaps up to 35 seats changing hands, uh, going from Republican to Democrat. And again, not a single Democrat across the nation lost his or her seat. We will have the first female Speaker of the House in the history of the country. Uh, And it all begins today, folks. This uh, election is not an ends in and of itself. It is a means in which to change the direction of this country, to return to more fiscal sanity, to return to uh, more compassion for our fellow citizen, and to change course in Iraq. Uh, Let the, uh, and, oh, I should also say, uh, let the hearings begin.
mission accomplished. <laughs> we even got Rummy. Hey. Goodbye. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. And put that rubber stamp back in the drawer where you found it. Oh, look, there's a legislative branch. Oh, my God. <laughs> Congratulations, everybody. There is going to be actual oversight where there used to just be overlook. No more of that crap. Yeah, he can go full speed ahead as long as he wants to, this president, but we are the brakes. That's what we are now. We're the freaking brakes on that runaway train. And rummy collateral damage. Bye-bye. <laughs> rolling out. Bad news is, they left a hell of a mess on the beach. What a freaking mess. And we don't even know what the hell's been done to us yet, but we're about to find out. Like I said, there will be a day of reckoning, and the assessment of the damage will come from a Democrat. Please don't hold it against him or her. And when Nancy Pelosi said she was going to drain the swamp, who the hell knew what she was talking about? Now I do. She went after Don Rumsfeld in a meaningful way. I'll bet you anything. There was a phone call in the middle of the night last night, but the president's asleep. Well, wake him up. <laughs> I got something to tell him. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that she said something along the lines of, look, you know, America doesn't really want to go through an entire process of impeachment and hearings and subpoenas, although there might be some, Mr. President. I just can't stop John Connors. You know how he gets. <laughs> John Conyers is now the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, baby. Henry Waxman is the chairman of government reform. You're going you're gonna to see some reform now. And you're also going to see a raise in the minimum wage now. And you're also going to see a discussion on health care now. And you're also going to see veterans' benefits, poof, mysteriously return to the, to the veterans. You're going to see a lot of stuff. And you're going to see it really quick. Uh, of course, we have to wait now. Hurry up and wait. That's the government for you because they're a lame duck Congress. We st they're still there. And they're still coming back to work, these shameful bastards. They'll still show their face and they'll still come back to work until the new Congress is sworn in in January. So as soon as they get seated in January, you're going to start to see some amazing good things happen for Americans, for real people. There will be real wage increases. For real people, there will be real benefits. And a thank you for helping us fight in a war you shouldn't have been called on to fight in, but you succeeded within three weeks and they just kept you there. You know, it's unbelievable to me. But, um, you know, when she was saying drain the swamp, drain the swamp, I'm like, okay, I understand that it's a cesspool and you want to drain it, but we won the election. Why is she still saying, well, I'll bet you anything last night in the middle of the night. Wake him up! This is Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, third heartbeat from the presidency. And I want to talk to my president. Just, she probably did it nicer than I would, but and, and she probably said to him, Listen, you get rid of Rumsfeld, we'll go easy on you. You know, there is going to be some oversight. I'm sorry, but you just can't control the waxman. You know, he's really big on, uh, you know, uh, ethics and stuff. We have a real ethics committee now. We have a real rules committee now where we decide what gets on the floor, what bills get voted on, what gets amended, what doesn't, who can have a hearing, who can't. 
When you have a runaway executive, which really wanted the House of Representatives, and that's not all we won last night, by the way. You know, uh, poor Nancy. I mean, she's so busy doing it. So I'm sure she called the president in the middle of the night last night and said, you do something about this war right freaking out, and the first thing that you're going to do is get rid of Don Rumsfeld. Ethics are a big part of Nancy's swamp, and she needs to start draining off the, 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 the congealed fat. Oh, speaking of fat, she has to sit in Denny Hastert's chair. Ew! I hope he doesn't get stuck in the drain. Uh, it's so disgusting. Really? I mean, then, uh, you know, why did the little girl get to pull with the bad drain and not uh, Denny Hastert, you know? I, this is a case for John Edwards. <laughs> she's, they say, oh, she's got some big shoes to fill. Hell, shoes. She's got to fill a, bo- a pair of uh, boxers, like the, like, like the size of a two-man tent. She's like a quarter of his size. Hope she gets the chair of her choice. Who would want to sit on that chair after him? But anyway, I'm sure that's what happened last night, and I'm sure she made a deal with him. And, and I'm sure she said, look, you know, you just these, these, were, these Democrats, they're a little crazy about ethics. You know how they are. They're prickly when it comes to right and wrong. Good and evil, you know. So I'll tell you what, you get rid of Rumsfeld. And you pick somebody that your dad would uh, countenance. You pick somebody that your dad could live with. And uh, you wait for this Baker Commission to finish its work. And we'll give you a little uh, breathing room because we got things to do for the American people. upon what's happened here with our gigantic wins in the House and the Senate. And I actually took the weekend off, went to Seattle. It's a curious decision, you might think, in November. You, you'd never be... taken a weekend off, I think, since we started the show. Yeah, it's... No, but almost. No, I know. And and I did no work. None. And it seemed like a month. It yeah. seems like, oh, we won, like, you know, 13 months ago. I just... It does feel like that. Yeah, doesn't it? Is it just me because I took the weekend off, or does it feel like it's been a long time? No, last Tuesday does feel light years away, and I don't know if it's because we've wanted it for so long that it just felt so comfortable stepping into the role of the majority that it doesn't feel new. It just feels like, you know, the same old comfy T-shirt that we've been wearing all along. <laughs> I don't know I'd go that far. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not comfortable with it, but but it feels good. And it feels like it's, you know, it's it, that I don't know. To me, a month is what it feels like. Am I wrong? I'm no, wrong, no, I right? think you're right. I think it feels like almost a week, like five, six days have just, Crazy. <laughs> have just flown by. <laughs> All right. So now what are the feelings I have uh, this far into it? Um, I feel like I, I, did I no longer have to be panicked? I don't did I no longer have to scream that I no longer, you know, have to convince people that Iraq is a terrible idea and that George Bush has no idea what he's doing. I feel like a guy who's climbed up onto the cliff. Like we were hanging on by our fingernails to the edge of the cliff and we've climbed back up and I'm just, I'm sitting there now enjoying the view. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm safe and I'm, uh, oh, oh, 
hey, look at that. Nice sunset. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, I know. I know I used the old T-shirt um, metaphor a second ago. But on top of that T-shirt metaphor, I really feel like a cozy blanket has just been thrown over the United States of America. And we can all just sleep tight. I feel like the media doesn't understand what happened. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of that. Yeah, a little bit of that. Don't worry. That's not going like, away. But. I feel like the world is not going to explode now. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Jill Pike has summed it up in one simple uh, thought there. The world is no longer going to explode. Uh, now, it turns out s- the world don't move to the beat of just one drum. It doesn't. That's what's amazing. It takes different folks. <laughs> Jesus. God. No, I, I screwed it up. Of course I was going to screw it up. It takes a new, uh, different, what did you say? It takes different folks? Yeah, different strokes yeah. for different 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 folks. strokes for different folks, nerd. Yeah. All right. So, now, having said that, of course, of course, we can't let our guard up. Doesn't mean, like, we put up our feet and we're like, oh, it's done. All our work is done. Now everything's going to be great and we're going to ride off into the sunset. Of course not. And, you know, Ben was kidding, but, of course, he's the media continues to distort things. For example, the thing that's driving me crazy, and we'll talk to Michael Isikoff about it uh, in a couple of hours um, from Newsweek, is the media constantly, and we talked to you know Eleanor Clift about it uh, last Friday as well, but it continues every time you turn on TV. The Democrats have won the House and the Senate, and this proves how the conservatives have uh, uh, won. Uh, well, I, what? I, what? I don't see that as a fair depiction what? of, of uh, what's what? being portrayed at all. That's not how the media is portrayed. No, 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 no. Wait a minute. Now, of course, the, the, you know, Iraq, there needs to be a new change. There's a lot of different storylines going on along with the election. But one of the clear st- storylines I've seen over and over is you see how it's the conservative Democrats who won. And so this is actually a validation of the conservative principles. The fact that Democrats want an overwhelming. I've majority. read different articles than you. I mean, I, I, I they have emphasized the split in the party and how difficult it will be for Pelosi and Reid uh, to govern. And I think, sort of, in general, I would say overstating the difficulty they might face because it won't be any more difficult than it ever was for Democrats. But I uh, that but that's the emphasis of the story. Not to me that the conservatives have won. There was a line in the third to last paragraph of the Washington Post piece, which some people latched onto. I I just didn't think it was that big a deal. I thought it was wrong. The line about the the center right step of the nation, uh, basically a you know a conservative nation or whatever the hell it said. But it was at the end of the piece, and it was they had earlier pointed out how uh, how the unquestionably the far right had 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 sort of lost its way. You know, that was at the beginning of the piece. But, uh, you know, so that exists, too. I want to be fair. Okay, now I I see in some of the pieces and what I see on television as well is, look, this is a repudiation of the far right. And for the first time, actually, I'm beginning to see the neocons, the uh, Bush administration in particular, mostly the Bush administration being and the guys who ran the Republicans who ran Congress being portrayed as the far right Mm -hmm. or extreme. Which I had not seen before. Right. And I see that as a very, very positive sign. I saw it sometimes in reference to neocons, but generally speaking, when it came to the Republican Congress or the Bush White House, they were seen as right of center, mainstream Americans. And you I know? wouldn't necessarily say that the country has gotten more conservative. The the Republican Party, I think, shifted so far to the right that inevitably to make up the ground, the Democrats had to become slightly more conservative just to gain the power back. But I don't really think that's a, a, a giant consensus over the country. I mean, I think as everything starts to shift, 
everything shifts with it, and then eventually well, you get back to a middle ground. Well, I think that's what you. I think what you're saying is 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 true, except that I think that that is what happened, and that is a rightward shift of the country. But it's over. You know, it's we're talking 25 years. There's no question the country has drifted uh, to the right. I mean, oh, see, I, I I think socially and and through all those things, that America's gotten way more liberal. No, I, I mean, I, the, I, well, I mean, I, I just I, I disagree with you. I think most political scientists would disagree with you, too. I mean, th- there is a certainly the, look at the social aspects of this country and, and, and the way that we welcome in gay marriage, you know, single family adoption, uh, homosexuality sure, it's is not, very prevalent. Women, abortion is legal. Racism is not as, as prevalent actually, as it was 25 years ago. Abortion was more legal 25 years ago. Um, and uh, and of course, it's more widely accepted today, though. Uh, maybe I think it's about this. I don't know, uh, but uh, I mean, certainly th- there's some truth to, to to what you're saying. But I mean, there is no strong, vibrant, uh, 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 pulsating, active, far left wing of the Democratic Party. I mean, even the people who we, uh, even the people who we tout as progressives, mm-hmm. uh, might sort of be looked at in the 19. 19- you know, that's and I think this fits in with why you know at least why Jenk agrees with them to such enormous extent is that in 1975. They wouldn't even have been the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. I got a question for you, Ben, on that. Because I I think that both you and Jill are right on different issues. Very, very right on different issues. And we're going to take your views on this in the next segment as well. Our number is 866-303-2270. 866-303-2270. But the the far left that you just you described a second ago, Ben, mm-hmm. I've lost track of it. I mean, maybe it was so long ago. Maybe it never existed and it was a mirage. What is the far left? Well, I mean... Because I know what the far right is. I got it. I no, mean, no. And I think I used to make fun of the far left, but I've forgotten what it is. Well, <laughs> I mean, it would be a... It would First of all, there's priorities about it. There would be, you know, I mean, as, as Bill Clinton and the Republican Congress sort of did away with the idea of the welfare state, and it remains to be seen exactly how effective that parts of it were effective and parts of it, you know, need to be fixed, just like... Uh, with welfare initially. If you're going to reform it, you probably have to reform it a few times before you, you figure it out. But nobody talks about that as a, uh, a, a, as a way that we ought to lead our lives. Nobody thinks that, uh, uh, that, there are, that, that we ought to, you know, there was talk in the 1970s of unilateral disarmament. There is no significant political person who talks about that. There is no the the there is no sort of the there is there is no true advocate for you know rights of the poor sort of you know uh, as a mainstream philosophy. Uh, there is no but there is no notion that uh, you know uh, right now that we everybody acknowledges that that first war was a good idea. You know, uh, and it's quite. I suspect that, and I, and I maybe could well be wrong. And this is, a, but if that if Afghanistan had happened in 1971, there would have been a not an insignificant movement of. Nah, that's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Now I might be wrong because we were, of course, attacked, and that did make a great deal of sense to respond to it in the mm-hmm. way that we did. Well, I guess what you look the people who are in- interested in fixing poverty, I'm right there with them. I might disagree with them on some tactics. In fact, I know I will. And because I was a big advocate of welfare reform, because I thought it was hurting the poor uh, to just, you know, endlessly set up an incentive system where they would get money for doing the wrong things. Um, but that being said, so I might disagree with, you know, if there is such a far left, I might disagree with them on that to some degree. And I guess if there is the 
peace at all costs, even if it means we right. don't have justice, even if it means the, 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 we don't, you know, strike back against people. I may be totally them. buying into what was the 1970s Republican talking point. Yeah, on no, that because I'm, that's what I'm trying to recollect. Was there really a unilateral disarmament movement? Because I know I used to argue against it, but now I'm wondering if it was well, all a mirage. No, look, uh, first of all, it was just a, I, I was just talking about a wing that existed. I mean, it was never, nobody was going to do it. Nobody in power was going to do it. Nobody, nobody sensible, particularly uh, advocated it. But it was a. There was certainly a much, and and I just think the 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 I, that movement has been replaced by the all these progressives who, who won, and even people like you know Sherrod Brown in Ohio and and Russ Feingold. The, these guys, um, they're just talking. You know, they wouldn't seem radical to anyone and forget the fact that we don't actually think that they're radical but the people who think they are radical they wouldn't even seem radical if not for the fact that this administration was so far off the rails that these guys are screaming far louder than they would have been uh you know than they they would not be screaming nearly this loud of course you know at george bush or 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 ronald reagan but that's my point i don't i don't think the country is anywhere near um what the government has been for the last six years that's true but unquestionably politically the whole country moved absolutely to the right about what sort of the way what we talk about what we run on what would be considered mainstream and not just by but the I media but by politicians gave I- up their principles on fear i think i think i think the republicans played into the fear card for a long time and they gave up a lot of what they hold as valuable up to to feel safe hours. That's how long House Speaker-in-waiting Nancy Pelosi says she needs to enact an ambitious legislative agenda in the new democratically controlled Congress. In today's Unger Report, Brian Unger wonders if 100 hours is enough time. In 100 hours, or roughly 4.16 days, the Democrats want to raise the minimum wage, reform energy policy, implement new homeland security measures, expand college tuition assistance, boost stem cell research, lower drug prices, limit lobbyists, curb spending, and for Iraq, do something about it. This 100-year plan, correction, 100-hour plan, longer than a Britney Spears marriage, shorter than a speech by Fidel Castro, is ambitious. To create a perfect world, even God needed two more days than what the Democrats say they need. Delivering these results in the time it takes to get your luggage at Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson Airport is a bold plan in the spirit of a great American virtue, optimism. But we are a wary, skeptical nation when it comes to promises, having been burned so often by margarine that doesn't taste like butter 
by the cable guy who didn't show up, by people who couldn't even deliver a pizza in under 30 minutes. If we can't trust Domino's, can we trust Democrats? The nation is hungry for change. But it took FDR 100 days to pass the heart and soul of the New Deal that led the nation out of the Depression and on to prosperity. According then to the new democratic math of 100 hours, the country is only 124th as screwed up as it was in 1933. So that's good news. It also means in order to succeed, Democrats need only accomplish a 24th of what FDR accomplished. That's like a pay cut or a beer tax, a couple of fireside chats, and it's Obama in 08. However, on thornier, broader issues like Iraq, Social Security, and immigration, the 100-hour plan is likely to go into overtime, which Democrats can simply call a second 100-hour plan, followed by a third, possibly a fourth, and so on. This is not unprecedented. The Soviet Union had 12 five-year plans, and when the sixth five-year plan failed, the Soviets just renamed it the seven-year plan, which lasted for more than 20 years until they were able to resume with the ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth five-year plans. That's over 60 years' worth of five- and seven-year plans until the Soviet Union finally collapsed, making a thirteenth five-year plan moot. For Democrats, there is some encouragement in knowing no matter how much they fail in the 110th Congress, they won't suck half as bad as the Soviets did. But why debase our noble American political system by even mentioning words like Soviet or suck? Let us look upon this post-midterm period as a new dawn, a time to bury the hatchet, preferably in someone's chest, so they can see it coming, not their back. A time to end lingering bitterness and resentment for common purpose, to end a war, to secure the rights of all workers, and for God's sake, to keep our hands off the interns and pages. So it may take more than 100 hours. Who's counting? And that is today's Under Report. I'm Brian Unger. South Carolina on one one. Andy, welcome to the Young Turks. Hey, um, I just wanted to say about the whole left versus right debate you guys had earlier. Yeah. That I'm I'm agreeing with her, and if I can use a metaphor here, I think it's like if you compare the last dozen years in this country, it's been like a giant earthquake, and it's pushed the foundation over to the left. But the house, the actual house, the politics is leaning more towards the right. Oh, gee, I we, like that. And what we need to do, we need to, like, protect, like, fend off the nutso right-wing guys for a few years. 
until they wither and die and the younger generation rises up and all that kind of stuff and we can yank the house back further left onto its proper foundation I don't think then we can should... get things nice and settled I mean I'm a socialist in South Carolina. I can qualify for an endangered species fund. I know what I'm talking about to some degree. Yeah, well, uh, I'm sure that that's true. I don't think you should go around yanking houses. I, I'm not a structural engineer, but that sounds terribly, terribly dangerous. Andy, thank you for the call. i got to confess that I just flat out love your analogy. You know, I'm a fan of analogies to begin with. I think it's a really good one. And, and that's how I felt the whole time. Like, we're on the side of the house trying to prop it up, make sure it doesn't fall down, because we got to make sure... The house has gone to the right when the 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 land has gone to the left, mm-hmm. and we just that that's why I was talking about in the first segment how I feel like we were hanging on by our fingernails to the edge of the cliff, and now we're on top of the cliff. We've made it out. They've rescued us, and now we're sitting there breathing hard. Like I feel like we've, in your analogy, the house isn't going to fall down. I, we've I, made sure it's not going to fall down. Now it's just a matter of simply pushing it, and we know we can push it back. I, I That may be. I, I think, and, and, and again, and I, I'm, I, I'm not sure I can back it up, So you know, but my sense is is that for 25 years the country did move uh, to the right with some significant social exceptions where we, we grew socially, and when you grow socially, you make progress, you're progressives. I mean, that's by its very nature. So we're socially, we're definitely opening things up. The last six years... Any fight back against the last six years of incompetence, of dangerous incompetence uh, and deceit inevitably feels like the whole country is drifting to the left because these guys pulled so suddenly and so dramatically uh, uh, to the right. I would just caution everybody that we might want to win more than one election before we declare that ah, we've got it and the country has moved back to the left. Let's just let's hold the majority uh for a while and and I and 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 before we are uh, I I'm just not I'm I'm not I'm not certain. I, I want to win again and again and again. Now, of course, but you know, I shared my feelings about this on Friday a little bit. I just think that the Republican Party is structurally unsound. I agree. And, and so I, you know, I'm not concerned about the long term as much, <laughs> nearly as much as I am about the short term. I was panicked about the short term because I thought maybe they'll invade Iran and make such a big mess of it, there'll be no recovery. Or maybe, you know, they'll run roughshod over the Constitution, maybe get rid of habeas corpus, etc., and then we might not be able to recover from that. Now that we've propped the House back up, I think maybe we could push back on habeas corpus and warrantless wiretapping and all the constitutional issues and Iran. And if we can just get these guys out, I think in the long term, we have an enormous structural advantage. I think we do too. It doesn't mean uh, uh, that we have an enormous. I think I don't. I don't think we have an enormous structural advantage. I think we have an enormous conceptual advantage, and we have to figure out a way to uh, to take advantage.
Democrats are in the business of thwarting the democratic process. We will hold the majority. We meet at dawn. I'm obviously disappointed with the outcome of the election. A lot of folks have been asking about the recount. Let me tell you about the recount. It was a thumping. Do not wish to cause more rancor by protracted litigation, which would, in my judgment, not alter the results. I am making a change at the Secretary of Defense. The president has great confidence in Donald Rumsfeld. Bring a fresh perspective as to how to achieve something I think most Americans want, which is a victory. Great respect that I have for your leadership, Mr. President, uh, in this little understood, unfamiliar war. Uh, while we have been adjusting, we will continue to adjust. I have benefited greatly from criticism. Constantly assessing. I'm uh, assessing uh, as well all the time by myself. And that requires constant assessment. At no time have I suffered a lack thereof. Somehow it seeped in their conscience that my, my attitude was just simply stay the course. We're constantly looking for fresh perspective. I've been talking with Don Rumsfeld over a period of time about fresh perspective. He likes to call it fresh eyes. Don Rumsfeld and the president talking about the need for fresh eyes. It is not well known. It was not well understood. It is complex for people to comprehend. I didn't want to inject a major decision about this war in the, in the final days of a campaign. Good question for which there was not a simple and easy answer. So the only way to answer that question and to get you on to another question was to give you that answer. I don't know. Get back to me. You know, I'm, I, I've, I've given you about all I know. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot more. I don't know. Let me get back to you. Hmm, trying to think that one through. I don't have the insights you want. Like I said, I don't know. No, you don't. No, you don't know. I, I'm not sure. Look, I, I don't know. I just don't know. It can't help you. This is a close election, but I thought we were going to be fine in the election. It was a thumping. I look forward to working with them. And I truly believe that Congresswoman Pelosi and Harry Reid care just about as much, you know, they care about the security of this country like I do. They're the cut and run Democrats, Jack Murtha, Pelosi. And now we're going to work together for two years to accomplish big objectives for the country. Republicans and Democrats are equally as patriotic. If we leave Iraq before the job is done, the enemy will follow us here. First, I want to congratulate uh, Congresswoman Pelosi for becoming uh, the Speaker of the House. The Democrats want to get us out of Iraq. That doesn't mean they, they don't, you know, don't want America to get attacked. Almost as if the Democrats, uh, you know, it's like they are content with losing. As a father of young women, it is. Uh, I think it's an important. I really do. Senator Reid and I are both from the West. Pull out to withdraw from this war is losing. Come on, folks, everybody knows they've tried to sabotage victory in this war. Envision a world in which a country which can't stand America has a nuclear weapon. They do want to lose. And that's what's at stake in this election. What's changed today is the election's over and the Democrats won. We love America equally. Democrats are going to support our troops just like Republicans will. The Democrat approach comes down to this. The terrorists win and America loses. We do agree that we love America equally. Saddam Hussein would never have been convicted for war crimes if we had listened to Democrats. This is the beginning of a series of meetings we'll have over the next couple of years, all aimed at, uh, at, uh, at, at uh, solving problems and leaving the country. Over time, the contributions you've made will be recorded by history. Pretty much summarized. Say, why all the glum faces? What did it say? Who's won that race? What's the weather like today?
The Democrats are poised to retake Congress and fix everything. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Democratic leaders say that as soon as they regain control of the U.S. Congress, the sun will shine again, soft, soothing rains will fall upon our crops, and flowers will bloom year-round. Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid. All Americans will be greeted each morning by the most beautiful rainbow they've ever seen. Reid says while taxes may increase slightly after the election, the effect will be mitigated by the gold coins and naked ladies that will begin drifting down from the sky above. Doyle Redland for The Onion Radio News. Thanks for listening, everybody. I actually have some things I need to talk about, but I'm having serious issues with my computer, and every time I start trying to record, it'll, it shuts down on me, so I have to be very quick and, and just say that the show is going to be uh, off the air completely for a couple of weeks, uh, only because I'm going on vacation. Where else would any uh, regular red-blooded American go with his family to celebrate the great American holiday of Thanksgiving? France, of course. So I'm going to France for uh, just a week and a half or so, so I'll be back. Uh, There's nothing wrong, but the show's going to be down. Uh, That's the same reason why this show is so late in coming out. Um, The way things are going, I think that this will actually be posted from France. So uh, I'm gone. I will uh, try to maintain contact through the message board so you can find me there. Uh, Be sure to give feedback on this uh, new format, either uh, through the uh, forum at botlcommunity.com or uh, directly at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. And I will uh, speak to you all when I get back. Have a good one, everybody. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.